Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me once again through the miracle of satellite technology is a man who knows that the owls are not what they seem. It's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, and whilst I'm going to take a back seat on that episode, of, of this episode, <laughs> I do understand that reference um, because I have seen some of the show you're about to talk about. Yeah, I was going to make a reference to the revival of Twin Peaks which uh, is the subject of this episode in which I discussed with my friend Emily Benita and which uh, people will hear in, in a couple of minutes time but I thought it's probably best to go with the one that you would respond to as opposed to you just being like yeah okay mm-hmm. that was a weird thing that you just said um, <laughs> I'd also just like to uh, apologize for saying that your name was Matt Resby last week when I introduced you uh, I realized that how weird it is that often when you're friends with people you don't end up saying their last name ever and so whenever I have to do these intros, it's like, oh, yeah, that's I have to remember how to say Matt's name and as its entirety, because we're not characters in a film who are constantly saying, Matt Risby, how are you, dear boy? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just happy to be here. So I didn't even know this uh, <laughs> yeah. last week. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, as, as we said, this episode uh, I recorded uh, a few weeks ago talking to my friend Emily and we'll be delving into... Uh, Twin Peaks The Return but before then uh, we're just going to run through some of the big stories from this week's news and uh, unsurprisingly the big news co- uh, continues to be the fallout of the Harvey Weinstein scandal which uh, in the mere week since we last spoke and mm. including whilst we were speaking last week because we finished recording the episode and we checked our phones and was like oh a lot of things have just happened in like the two hours we were talking uh, he was fired from the Weinstein company the company that he he co-founded with his brother. He's been expelled from the Academy, only the second person ever, and the first person apparently was fired because some of his screen has leaked online. So uh, he's like a hundred and two year old guy, wasn't it? Who like Yeah. And like his DVDs fell into the wrong hands and now he's in the same bracket as uh, as Harvey Weinstein, which is uh well, I mean, you want to keep hold of your screeners, but you also don't want to be in that company. Yeah, they've they've given themselves a pretty broad range of crimes for being kicked out of the Academy for for mm. Um, there and also there are rumours going around that Jay Z might buy his stake in the Weinstein Company and kind of refashion it as a movie distribution slash studio for uh, kind of works by diverse filmmakers, which would be the best possible outcome of this situation. But we'll see. There's currently calls for the board to resign for the whole thing to be liquidated, which mm. uh, I don't see happening just because it's a bunch of white people who are just going to be like, nope, we got rid of this guy, so no, we're we're fine to continue as is. What else happened? Because there were lots of other things. Uh, lots of uh, of people came forward and accused him of, of various crimes, uh, of sexual assault, sexual uh, harassment, including uh, people like Rose, Rose McGowan, who was uh, banned from Twitter for a while because of speaking out against him, essentially. They said it was because she posted a personal phone number, but a lot of people pointed out that Twitter are pretty lax when it comes to enforcing these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cara Delevingne, Kate Beckinsale, Gwyneth Paltrow... Uh, and also there was a kind of a knock-on effect where anyone who had enabled him or decided now was the time to speak up and defend him, uh, it was drawn to everyone's attention that they had their own uh, skeletons in the closet in the case of people like Ben Affleck or Oliver Stone or Matt Damon who and, and Russell Crowe who supposedly killed a story about his about Harvey Weinstein's 
sexual assault claims in 2004. So uh, this is a story that uh, certainly seems to be snowballing in a major way. Mm, it it kind of I think we said last week that we didn't want to keep talking opening each show with a with a different kind of sexual like abuse or assault uh, or harassment scandal as it has been going uh, for like the last two or three weeks. But now it appears this is a much wider thing. Um, and it seems to be Hollywood uh, taking an opportunity, uh, forcing itself to kind of have a long, hard look in the mirror, mm-hmm. um, which is something that kind of needs to happen. It kind of feels like the floodgates opened last week, and this week has just been a constant stream of mm-hmm. um, repercussions. And, and like it's so wide reaching. He was so influential and so powerful and had his fingers in so many projects and pies and things that it is is just so... It blankets the whole industry because he kind of straddles the independent and the mainstream. He's Mm. the guy who gets those independent filmmakers um, onto the Oscars podium. So, like, at every level of, of Hollywood filmmaking, he's a presence. And it's crazy to see how everyone is just kind of either disowning him or or making the most half-assed apologies um, you could imagine. It's interesting to know the, the Matt Damon thing, the journalist who was contacted by, allegedly contacted by Matt Damon and uh, Russell Crowe has actually verified Matt Damon's side of the story to say mm. that he actually had, uh, she, he had contacted her um, to essentially stop it being a hatchet job rather than to cover up any kind of sexual misconduct which mm. is is kind of better <laughs> yeah I mean, it's kind of like hounding hounding journalists out of printing stuff you don't like isn't particularly a good look on anyone mm. but yeah this week we heard a lot of um as a father of three daughters i <laughs> finally understand that sexual assault is wrong yeah um, and uh yeah that very quickly became the most weaselly of weasel excuses um, but I think one thing that's really been great about this week is when the kind of like the person in power falls, everyone puts the boot in. Mm. And we've had like, I saw like people like Scott Derrickson, who directed Doctor Strange, didn't he? I think. Yeah. Just like the Weinstein brothers were the worst fucking people I've ever met in my entire life. Mm. And I was like, two weeks ago, that is something you never would have typed into Twitter um, because it would have had possible repercussions on your career or whatever but now it's like all these people who've harbored all these resentments have you know just finally come out and kind of said whatever they've been thinking and on the other hand people like Woody Allen have come out and said oh I think it's all very unfortunate which is like I'm thinking maybe maybe not the time now Woody (laughs) um that's and and this is it like the the anger is so raw and and the, the it's so uh kind of br- like so like across the spectrum of, of people are kind of horrified by it that that now like it's it's going to be time for like like a real house clearing um and like people say well Harvey Weinstein's been kicked out of the academy and it's just like well i mean i'm sure there's like other people i mean i know Woody Allen's not in the academy but I'm pretty sure Roman Polanski is mm, and and Allen won an Oscar not six years ago for writing Midnight in Paris. Mm. And it's not like the accusations about him were only discovered in, like, March of 2011, like, after it had been handed out. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's like, these are things that have been known for a very, very long time. 
but yeah. no one really likes talking about them. Um, yeah, I think for me, the whole thing about this is it, it does bring to light stuff that people have whispered about and known about in very abstract ways for a very long time. Or or these things where you will see a story float about a particular producer or director, which then kind of nothing happens about. Then you, you get the, the thing of like saying, oh, well, you know, this model's just doing it for attention or they're, they're, they've got some sort of like default in their character that means they can't be trusted or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think the the danger of all of this is that the people in Hollywood will use the excommunication of Harvey Weinstein to just basically sweep everything under the rug and be like, well, we got rid of that guy. No need to do anything else because like people, uh, uh, Lexi Alexander, the, the filmmaker uh, said on Twitter that, you know, if women wanted to only work for companies that didn't, uh, uh, didn't employ a single predator, they'd never work again. Mm-hmm. And like the problem of using sex as a form of dominance of power in the film industry is so pervasive, and every actress and every female director, everyone who's who's worked in Hollywood will have at least one of these stories that it will require like a protracted period of self reflection and reinforcement and reorganization uh, and there's just the question of whether or not these studios will actually have the fortitude to go through with it and like I mean like you said last week and we've both been saying it's like yeah I'm not sure if they do because not much in Hollywood has ever demonstrated that they have that fortitude they much prefer to have someone that they can scapegoat and then just kind of move on Mm, I just I just kind of hope that it's it's not people don't just see even if the Weinstein company gets dissolved and mm. you know their holdings. I mean, they, they've had a couple of big films like put back. Like they've got their film. Uh, is it called The Current War? Uh, yeah, the one about is it about Thomas Edison? And, Tom, yeah, Edison yeah. and Tesla. Yeah, um, I mean that was going to be a big Oscar contender, and I think that's had its release date pulled. So I don't know whether mm. it's been pushed back past the Oscars consideration or whether they just don't want to make a fuss this year. But like, it it can't end with you know, a company folding because it's bigger than that. It needs mm. to be kind of a root and branch top to bottom kind of uh, uh clear out of uh, wrongdoers. And like, it's, it's kind of really awful to keep opening up Twitter every day and seeing, oh, this person has been accused of doing this. And it's just like, well, that's terrible. Cause I liked that person till this point, but good. Do mm. you know what I mean? Like, <sighs> It's, this is a really painful thing that, that Hollywood's going to have to go for, but it is for the greater good because it's way less painful than all the pain that's been caused for the previous 150 years. Yeah, yeah. That's that's just what you hope will happen, is that there will be, it, even if it takes decades, that mm. this will force people to take accusations of sexual assault and harassment more seriously that it will create an environment in which actresses and and women in general in the film industry and, you know, in critic circles as well, you know, this is across, this cuts across every area of the industry feel like they can speak up and they will be believed and people will help them and Mm -hmm. they won't run the risk of having their career completely destroyed. Like one of the things that came out about Kate Beckinsale, she was talking about how her rebuffing Harvey Weinstein's advances, she says like, 
had a hugely detrimental effect on her career and people like looked at it and says well yeah when she started she was an acclaimed actress in uh, uh Whit Stillman movies and mm. then she went into underworld and kind of genre fair where Harvey Weinstein had no kind of uh, skin in the game mm. and you think oh yeah so and so it also brings to light the question of like how many careers you know there's we know all the careers he helped advance because they're people who went on to huge success and win oscars but the sheer number of careers that were destroyed because people weren't willing to put up with what he was doing or who wanted to come forward and were blacklisted as a result and then you might you spread that out and think okay all these other people who've probably been doing this and haven't been outed yet mm-hmm. uh, it just yeah it just very quickly becomes uh, heart-wrenching to think of the, the lives that were destroyed, the work that didn't get done. Yeah, so you you just have to hope that this, the pain will lead to something changing. Mm. So we'll see, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Uh, uh, someone who's not helping in this regard is uh, Mr. James Corden, mm. who um, made a series who is, for people who don't know, is... Um, Oh, imagine being lucky enough to not know who James <laughs> Corden was. Yeah, James Corden, uh, who was uh, came to fame in the UK on the back of the sitcom uh, uh, Gavin and Stacey, which he co-wrote with Ruth Jones, and which, fair play to him, it's a good show. Yeah, it's pretty good. Good, yeah, good sitcom. You can't say anything about that. Also, you know, he, he did work in the History Boys on stage and on the movie version, One Man, Two Governors. You know, he has he has strings to his bow. He does have some talent, but who in recent years has been uh, a late-night talk show host in the US doing things like car, carpool karaoke and is doing what all late-night hosts, shoot, late-night hosts do, which is eventually you kind of host galas and award shows and things. And he made a series of Harvey Weinstein jokes at a gala for Amphar, which is a AIDS charity, uh, including... <clears throat> Tonight's so beautiful, Harvey Weinstein has already asked tonight up to his hotel to give him a massage... It has been weird this week, hasn't it, watching Harvey Weinstein in hot water. Ask any of the women who watched him take a bath. It's weird watching Harvey Weinstein in hot water. And Harvey Weinstein wanted to come tonight, but he'll have to settle for whatever potted plant is closest. Now, these are all very weak jokes (laughs) that he didn't sell particularly well. Mm -hmm. But they are also, like, wildly inappropriate in this particular moment and very unhelpful. And they went down like a wet shit at the event. As they should have. Yeah, the the video um, that is going round has kind of uh, you know not not he's not doing him any favors, and also you know he had the thing with Sean Spicer a few weeks ago, mm. um, and uh, he, yeah, I mean, he's not covering himself in glory. Um, no, and but I mean, good because you know <laughs> I, I think someone put on Twitter today, I saw it, it was something along the lines of. Um, you know, he's doing, he's done like three or four terrible things this week, but he's a mediocre white male, so he'll be fine. Mm. <laughs> so, and he'll just keep getting, doing what he's doing and getting the access to whatever he's doing. But it also turns out that him and Weinstein are actually mates. Like Harvey mm. Weinstein was someone who tried to generate Oscar buzz um, around uh, that film he was in where he played, is it Paul Potts? Yeah. Think, he, yeah. yeah. Which seems an absurd <laughs> I didn't think I'd say that sentence maybe five years ago that Harvey Weinstein would attempt to generate Oscar buzz around a film in which James Corden played Paul Potts. Um, but you know, here we are. It's 2017. It's just like just garbage keeps getting thrown after the, after this story. Mm. And you know, um, uh, if anything, I, I kind of just hope it makes 
Mr. Corden realised that he's a very privileged situation um, and uh, he's very lucky to be where he is and mm. uh, he should uh, perhaps choose his, uh, his, his material more wisely. Yeah, because like, there is a skill to being a, a, a talk show host. You know, It's something that requires a certain degree of repartee and the ability to kind of make stale anecdotes that they're going to throw out at you, stories about like their project sound fresh and that you kind of inject a bit of fun to it. But it's also like such an on some level such an easy job to do particularly the way he does it with carpool karaoke where like someone on twitter made the the great joke is like discovering that james corden is popular in america is like discovering a tribe who worship a can of soup Mm. you know it's just it's such a bizarre thing for british people who got sick of him around about the time he did that sketch show with matthew horn or did uh lesbian vampire no yeah what's it called lesbian vampire Vampire. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so like these 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 things that within like a six-month period killed all goodwill that he had built up over the previous five years. The carpool karaoke, like you put a steamed ham in a tuxedo and sit next to Adele in a car, you're going to get 10 million views on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You might actually get more than he got. But, yeah. you know, it's not the most difficult task in the world. And I do feel as if, uh, yeah, he perhaps takes his skill as a kind of presenter a little too seriously because when you watch that video and he's like come on it's just like you've not really earned the right to kind of have this kind of dynamic with an audience where they're like oh he's just being james corden he's just being kind of ribald it's like no like no one really knows who the fuck you are (laughs) they know that you sit next to famous people in a car yeah 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 it's uh it's it's a funny one and yeah like i said i hope it it kind of uh you know, he's had two strikes in the last couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> you know, let's uh, let's wait and see what that third one's going to be. Yeah, and probably when he like does a duet with Phil Spector or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, Phil Spector will produce. He'll be singing it with Kim Jong Un. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's possible. Uh, so, in terms of what was a very light week, if you didn't want to talk about Harvey Weinstein, as as you and I both discovered when we were just like looking through what was, you know, everything was basically tied into Harvey Weinstein. It was announced this week that Sylvester Stallone will be directing and writing the sequel to Creed, which is something that kind of seemed like it was going to happen for a while, or at the very least that Ryan Coogler wouldn't be involved because, you know, he's working on Black Panther for for Marvel, and that seems to be taking up a lot of his time and is probably going to eat up a lot of his energies in the next couple of years doing either a sequel to that or other projects that that makes available to him. Uh, So it's kind of like, good news, we are getting a sequel to Creed. Bad news, it's not going to be directed by the guy that made the first one so good. Mm. And it's, I mean, I was perhaps a little more surprised than you because it's his baby, isn't it? It's not like Mm. he kind of stepped in to a franchise that was drifting along somewhere. Like it was, nothing was, he, he grabbed that opportunity and took it in his own direction. Um, after was it Rocky Balboa the sixth one like yeah a few years ago it wasn't it wasn't particularly a clamor for another Rocky movie but he like just made the best Rocky movie uh, mm. um, just single handedly in a kind of very virtuoso fashion um, but I, I thought it was interesting announcement to come because I feel a little bit like that the news reading between the lines feels like Disney are trying to lock him down to do mm. either like you say a sequel to black panther or something else big because they must seem happy with uh, black panther it certainly looks like nothing else we've seen in the in the in the marvel realm um and it's a kind of a gamble i guess for disney and you know 
Um, fair play to him if that's what they're doing. Um, I hope that is the reason that he stepped off Creed because Creed 2 was something that when it was announced, I was like, eh. But then it was always like, well, it's a Ryan Googler movie, so it's going to be good. Yeah, and it does kind of fit into... The other reason why it didn't surprise me that much, it does kind of fit into a pattern of Sylvester Stallone's career, which is that I've always thought that he is essentially a hustler and a little bit of a con man mm. in that every part of his career, like writing Rocky was really to kind of give himself a role because he couldn't find roles. And then he parlayed that into a successful action career. And then throughout the next 20 odd years, he would claim to write scripts for his movies, but people say that he didn't, or he would do that thing with like, I think Cobra where he tried to get them to say that he wrote the book it was based on <laughs> uh, when it wasn't based on it at all. And he is definitely someone who has always seemed to want to push himself as a brand in a major way. And the idea of like doing Creed, I think, probably appealed to him in that it would, you know, brought back his signature character and gave him a chance to get kind of recognition and acclaim from people who usually don't pay attention to him. And then that you know the next stage of that has always been as soon as people start looking at him in a new way to be like okay what can i do now and taking over the creed franchise certainly kind of feels like it fits into a pattern of behavior he has exhibited for like 40 years mm, yeah it's kind of i kind of almost think that creed would have been a perfect end for that character and mm. i mean it's a great standalone movie by itself but it was also the best performance you're ever going to get out of Sylvester Stallone. I mean, that was an exceptional performance. And uh, in one movie, he kind of did everything, kind of earned everything that he kind of churned out in five previous installments, plus Rocky Balboa. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he solved the Cold War in one of those movies. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it's no small task to uh, to pay that off. And they managed it. But, yeah, I'm kind of less excited for Creed 2 now. Like I say, Mr. Kugler seems to have uh, options and uh, hopefully benefactors at Disney who will give him money and freedom, which is all you can ask for, I guess. Yeah, as long as he and Ava DuVernay get the opportunity to make whatever the hell they want for the next 10 years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they've, they've got opportunities that even two or three years ago, I think, would have been unthinkable. Mm. Uh, but their sheer skill and the fact that as with the, the the Weinstein things, like the Oscars So White thing has forced the industry to go through a period of self-reflection and has allowed uh, filmmakers of colour to just basically force their way in and just be like, hey, you know, we're here, you can give us opportunities, then, you know, please do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, bodes well for the next couple of years, hopefully. Particularly, like, you see with Ava DuVernay, she helps up so many other black filmmakers and women filmmakers. Uh, like, they're... they're between the two of them, you know, I think they're going to produce a lot of opportunities for other people as well, mm. which is which is a nice change from the status quo in Hollywood where you see like a John Singleton come along who promises to be a fresh new voice and then just ends up being kind of part of the system or a Charles Burnett who comes along and then just never gets a look in. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have people who can maybe even change the system is very exciting. Yeah, I mean, to have two um, black filmmakers right now working on movies with budgets of like $150 million mm. is unprecedented really, and really exciting. Yeah. Keeping it uh, in the realm of Disney for our last story of this week, it was announced that Disney are cancelling the movie Gigantic, which uh, is not based on the Pixie song, as I originally <laughs> assumed. 
but is in fact about Jack and the Beanstalk and was going to be their new retelling of it. It was a project announced in 2013, recently announced they were pushing it back to 2020 and then announced that it had been cancelled entirely. Mm. Uh, it's kind of hard to feel sad about it because we didn't really know anything about it, how it was going to be, what the new twist on this old story was going to be. But also, it you know, it's a really shocking thing for Disney to do because it's so rare they'll cancel a project that's been in development for so long and when you look at things like Tangled which were in development for the better part of a decade and cost hundreds of millions of dollars just in development for them to just say yeah we're cutting our losses is uh, a really striking thing Mm, yeah it's like I say if something's in development that long it means it's had people working on it full-time for what four years Um, Mm -hmm. and even earlier this year when they announced they were going to push it back they're obviously still working on it full time. So that's four years of a production cycle. You're paying, you know, dozens of people to work on it, maybe even hundreds of people to work on it. And to pull the plug now is really interesting. Um, Mm. And there must be some bigger reason because they replaced, not even replaced the director, they brought on um, the co-director because it was going to be directed by one of the co-directors of Tangled mm-hmm. um, and they brought on the writer of Inside Out I think Meg LaForve um, yeah. and they brought on I mean that's that's something that Disney Disney Pixar does a lot they'll bring on another director to kind of be a co-director and kind of help shape it in a way because um, these things take a lot of time animation uh, animated movies take a lot of time to uh, to pull off but what's interesting is that it's got this far down the line to, like you say, pull the plug and say, this ain't going nowhere. So they must have had some serious creative problems or it just wasn't coming together or I don't know what other movies they've had out that have been like, like perhaps they've thought, oh, there may be a sea change. People don't want more fairy tale movies or mm. or what. I'm not entirely sure, but it had real pedigree. It had the guys from Frozen doing the songs so you know it had everything going for it but yeah just seems to have been pulled and and to be to pull it after four years of development when they had it booked in for 2020 to now they're saying they're going to replace it with another movie with the same uh release date yeah quite interesting that that uh that that's happened there's i mean it's not unprecedented there's uh was it is there a, a pixar or disney film was it called newt yeah, that was a, a Disney movie, a Pixar movie that I think was meant to come out like four years ago. <laughs> yeah, and that that didn't happen. Um, but I don't, I don't think that was in production for as long as this one. Um, no, only the Good Dinosaur and stuff had a lot of changes. But yeah, this is uh, it's weird. That, you know, obviously this this week has been all about Harvey Weinstein. That this was, I just kind of missed it. I kind of was looking through the stories of the week, and I was like, oh shit, and that's something that you know I heard about. A long time ago, there had been something that I just assumed was still coming. Mm. And, you know, they don't like throwing money away, Disney. Um, they love money. That's one thing <laughs> um, that we know about them. So, to, to you know, to probably have spent between 50 and $100 million developing a film for four years, that uh, can't really have been easy for them. Yeah, I mean, the only good thing is is like like the thing with Tangled was it ended up costing like $250 million, but that's because they just had to develop a shitload of new technology to make everything in it work. Mm. And then that stuff was then, you know, they got to use on things like Big Hero 6 and whatever. Like maybe they'll get some new programs, some new techniques, some talented new creatives through this whole process. Mm-hmm. But then to just have a whole a whole thing just kind of completely 
collapse and one that like you say they were talking up earlier in the year i'm pretty sure they probably talked at their big expos and things like that it's like oh this is on our slate this is going to be one of the movies we're going to make and just not happen at all is it's not unprecedented as we've we've said but it is very very rare and Mm -hmm. it does make you wonder if perhaps like you say they're moving away from fairy tales or maybe they thought well frozen was a huge hit and it was about uh, if it was kind of female-led maybe we don't want to do a fairy tale that's about a a male character or like that there's some disconnect between telling like a fairy tale with a male lead or whatever maybe they just thought we can't really think of an interesting take on jack and the beanstalk at this point Mm. like maybe we should just cut our losses and go look at something more interesting and i guess since then you know they they've uh, like had star wars become this huge thing that they also run so maybe they think maybe we could invest that's gonna uh inure us from the loss of cancelling this movie mm, yeah yeah absolutely and so that's the the news for this week and now what uh, everyone's going to hear is a, a, a discussion i had with my friend emily benita where we talked about twin peaks the return the third series slash reboot of david lynch and mark's frost's kind of classic television series uh two notes for this episode one there are some audio issues because there was a lot of ambient noise on my end and on emily's end which we didn't realize until we finished recording and i started editing it which is always the way and the other one is i guess a spoiler warning because we do talk about the plot of twin peaks the return but it's more just a sense that if you listen to this and you haven't watched twin peaks the return it will make zero sense to you. <laughs> like, nothing we discuss will make any sense because the show is so obtuse and abstract and impressionistic anyway. So, like, you can listen to it if you haven't watched it, but you will understand maybe 20 or 30% of it. If you have seen Twin Peaks The Return, it's a really great discussion that touches on everything from uh, misogyny, which obviously is very much in the news at the moment, to notions of God and grace and evil and yeah, it's a very wide raging, raging discussion. Uh, and I had an absolutely wonderful time. Uh, Emily's one of the most brilliant people I know. So it was it was wonderful to get to talk to her about Twin Peaks. And as, as we say in the episode, we could have talked about it for about six hours. So even at an hour and 40, 50 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, we had a lot. We could have discussed it for much, much longer. So uh, I hope everyone enjoys that one. And uh, Matt and I will be back at the end of it to kind of uh, see you out in the usual way. going to be talking about the return of mark frost and david lynch's seminal tv series twin peaks which uh, went off the air 26 years ago gil will take a prequel movie here or there and came back to much speculation and uh, much bafflement uh, when it came back uh, earlier this summer and to help me talk about twin peaks the return and the kind of fascinating and infinitely discussionable that's a word (laughs) it is yeah yeah it's totally a word uh piece of art is a writer a uh film uh producer uh who's previously worked for for warp films and the one of the producers of the new history podcast past tense because it's about things in the past that were tense it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How are you? Hi, Ed. I'm grand. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to just get really deep into all the Twin Peaks chat with you. <laughs> yes, as am I. I've, I've been putting together some notes over the last couple of days. And usually for this show, I put together maybe two or three pages of notes. And it's usually 
like just keywords it's like this will be a fun thing to discuss or whatever and this is like seven pages of notes just because the more I thought about Twin Peaks the more it just like things started branching off that's kind of the most remarkable thing about it isn't it and I think the Mm. thing that I wanted to say to kind of kick off is that the joy of it so much for me is that it's such an open text like Mm. as trying to kind of approach something critically you're often like well there's maybe a few readings I can put on this and there's definitely quite a set intention but the thing that I find so wonderful about Twin Peaks is that it is that it's more like a sandbox in a way to use Mm. a gaming uh, term (laughs) and I just wanted to say everything that I say in this conversation that that uh, will follow is essentially my take and mm. I don't want anyone to think that I think this is the only thing that it is it's just this is exactly what it feels like to me and I think that's why it's so endlessly brilliant to discuss it because you can have 20 different conversations about the same episode depending on who you're talking to yeah absolutely I mean that was that was something I also in my research I thought it was it was very interesting I'm not going to skip straight to the ending but <laughs> in terms of like the ending of the show I don't think Maybe not since The Sopranos has there been an ending which I think people can have totally diametrical interpretations of yeah. and both have a very strong argument for them. Yes. Because, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this later, but there is an interpretation of the ending which is that it's the most bleak and terrifying thing that's ever happened. Mm. And there is an interpretation that is actually hugely victorious. Yeah. And both arguments are supported <laughs> really by valid, the text, yeah. depending on how you interpret it uh, and what you think the story is about. And um, that is that is fascinating. That that is that is true. That everyone can agree more or less on who the characters are and some of the key events. But there's there's such a wide range of experiences of watching Twin Peaks that yeah, it, it is really kind of fascinating to see how that has played out. Oh, completely. And I think that is the crowning achievement of this series is precisely Mm. that I also want to talk about and we'll get there but there are some things which I feel a bit icky about um Mm. but that I think is my overriding sense of it's such a immense achievement precisely to have that openness yeah so uh, let's start from the beginning uh so uh, like I said at the start uh Twin Peaks uh, aired from 1989 when the pilot aired until 1991 when the the second season finale aired and the show having shed a lot of of viewers was cancelled came back for fire walk with me which was much maligned and has now been reappreciated uh, by a lot of people has been uh, reappreciated as a and reassessed as as kind of particularly by Lynch it seems because it's such a a huge part of the return mm. uh, and then you know the, the show went away and then a couple of years ago we found out that the show was coming back what were your expectations going into Twin Peaks what what did you think that Twin Peaks in 2017 would look like I had absolutely no clue Ed <laughs> I think yeah. the thing for me personally is that what I was aware of was that my life is Twin Peaks. And I mean Mm -hmm. that both in the sense that I am a rabid fan and Mm -hmm. also that the lifespan of the show is my lifespan. 
like <laughs> the the first I think the pilot yeah you're right the pilot premiered in 1989 and I think the first episode was the 4th of April 1990 I yeah. I premiered the 10th of January 1990 um <laughs> so watching coming into it was like well we're meeting these characters these characters have had my entire lifespan that we haven't seen on screen so I had no idea whether I had absolutely no idea because the second season left off at such a, I mean, we're talking about how you could possibly read the ending of the return as something bleak or something victorious. I don't think anyone could watch the second, the second season finale and think of that as anything but terrifying. You were left on such yeah. a cliffhanger and it was just brutal. I think for fans to know that it was, it was cancelled. And then, I mean, for me, I got into Twin Peaks, I must have been about 12 or 13. And mm. mainly through my cousins really liking it. I have two older boy cousins who put me on to just everything that's good and cultural in the world. Um, so thanks, Fred and Phil. Um, <laughs> and I hoovered up all of the episodes that I could. Um, I watched Firewalk With Me when my mum allowed me to. <laughs> and I read The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, which was written by uh, Jennifer Lynch, David Lynch's daughter. Yep. When she was, I think she must have been in her early 20s around then. And I think she was, she may have only been like 16 or 17. Or she, she was actually the kind of age that Laura was meant to be. Pretty much. And it was just absolutely brilliant and brutal. And again, that kind of idea of not only a supplementary text but genuinely another piece from that world that you could mm. and that was and so I thought you know and I think the thing was I was I had no clue but I was genuinely quite terrified because there'd been all of the hassle and the campaign about the idea that David Lynch wasn't actually going to be coming back to direct it I remember there was kind of yeah. like murmurs of that and luckily that kind of got overthrown and you wonder how much of that is actually kind of like possibly just a manufactured narrative to make sure people really wanted it but they did and uh Lynch came through and directed it so I knew it was back in the right hands and I mm. think maybe I was I was terrified because I thought oh god is it going to be good for a start is it going to be something that I want to watch but there was a, a sense of like well maybe they'll finally get to do what they want to do because every you have like 27 years of fan approval and absolutely everything like Twin Peaks when it came out it was and I'm gonna be talking about time a lot because I think time is absolutely crucial to a lot of what's going on in the return but you yeah. have essentially every single successful tv uh mogul referencing Twin Peaks and how inspiring it was and mm. I think Twin Peaks was ahead of its time and therefore couldn't live in its time. And ha and it was kind of too out there, but it, it really did blaze a trail forward for the TV that we're living in today. Yeah. And I think it's it was also very hard to imagine what a new Twin Peaks would look like because David Lynch had been away for so long. Yeah. Like his last major work... So he'd done music videos for people like Nine Inch Nails and Interpol and Moby, and he'd done some short films, but he hadn't made a, a, a significant kind of dramatic work since Inland Empire. And so 
using that and Mulholland Drive and uh, and Lost Highway, you could kind of get a sense of what it would be, which is that it would have the same characters, but it'd probably be a lot harsher and uh, a lot darker and digital and, and all the things that he had he had grown to be. But also there was this huge 10-year gap where we were like, how has he evolved as an artist in that time? Mm. Yeah, we don't have a huge amount of work to kind of uh, base that kind of expectation or that judgment on. And so there was that sense of like, you know, he's probably not going to come back and just do a nostalgia piece. He's not going to try and recreate what the old show looked and felt like because that's not who he is anymore and that's not where the culture is. Mm. The primetime soap opera as a cultural force has kind of waned a lot and so there's not really that incentive to deconstruct it in the way that he was he and Mark Frost did on the original uh, and, and so then also you, there was the question of how would he connect to modern television or would he connect to modern television at all uh, you know and, and I think that was an interesting thing to as it was airing to kind of try and piece out of of thinking how does this relate to the work he's done already how does this relate to the era of peak tv or prestige tv uh, and seeing that he was engaging with some of those ideas but also he was using the opportunity to make something with a, a huge cast and a massive budget and a probably like the biggest budget he's ever worked with since dune at least and a scope that he hadn't been able to work with for a very very long time and just being allowed to explore in a way that a lot of people don't on television. Completely. And I think it's interesting just what you were saying there about returning to that world and thinking about fan service. Mm. I was thinking about, I've never been a massive Gilmore Girls fan, but lots of my okay. friends have been just so adoring of it. And mm. the most recent four specials, the number of the like hardcore Gilmore Girl fans that I know who hated it because they were like, it's a mm. shadow of its former self. It's just become a caricature. It's kind of, and when you reduce, it's the, it's the difference between reducing something and getting to its essence. And I think the Gilmore mm. Girls was just fan service. They were like, oh, tick, tick, tick. Here are the things that people say they like. And they just packaged that rather than bring any genuine heart or story in which those kind of quirky things rose out of. It was kind of reverse engineered and people felt so bad about it. And the thing that struck me about starting to watch The Return in the first few episodes, how for a start, we weren't just in Twin Peaks anymore. This involved mm. other locations in the world. We went to New York and starting to think, wow, this is not, this is not for me. Like, and I think what, David Lynch and Mark Frost and the you know the creative team behind it did so well was give something that we didn't realize that we wanted yeah and say oh it's not going to be cozy like you say nostalgia it's not going to be and it's ironic that it's actually called the return because what mm. has returned it's not a repeat <laughs> that's the difference and it's you could say all the same things about the return as you could about the first couple of seasons. You know, there's that fantastic Simpsons joke where Homer's meant to be watching it and there's someone <laughs> dancing with a unicorn and he's like, <laughs> brilliant. I have no idea what's going on. You could say that everyone was saying, what the, I don't, what, huh? But in a different way, it wasn't in the same way as the first couple of seasons. 
Yeah, and I think that also, even just, you know, when it first cuts to New York, one, he makes New York look like terrifying in a way that I don't think anyone has managed in a very long time. (laughs) Like, it's so that, that and uh, I don't know if you saw the movie Good Time with Robert Pattinson, which came out earlier this year. I haven't yet, I really want to. Those those were both pieces of, of art this year that shot managed to find a new way to depict the most photographed city in the history of the world uh <laughs> which is incredible uh but yeah just like the drone shot of slowly moving up towards that building where the the box is being watched was you know straight away it's just like this is terrifying and new and strange and i don't know quite what's happening but i i, I like the fact that the moment that you go to new york or you go to south dakota it is saying, you know, it's been 25 years, the evil doppelganger of Coop that escaped from the, the Black Lodge at the end of the first, the second season has been out in the world for a while. He wasn't going to just spend all of that time in Twin Peaks. You oh, know, no. when, when Bob occupied the body of Leland Palmer, he had to stay in Twin Peaks because that's where Leland's life was. But now he and he's in the body of someone who looks like an FBI agent with all of the, the power and the knowledge that that inf- entails. So obviously his tendrils are going to spread out further than that. And so uh, that was that was something I thought the show did did brilliantly, was it did widen up the world uh, in ways both sinister in that you kind of see some of the terrible things that, that Mr. C, as he's, he's known, has been doing in that time. Uh, and then kind of the kind of the funnier, lighter, farcical side with Dougie in... Uh, in Las Vegas and, and also in terms of like what you were saying about the Gilmore Girls and the idea of the show kind of coming back and being just reduced to a couple of things that people realise but lacking the soul uh, which I think also was true of the X-Files when it came back last year oh, yeah. um, well I, like my interpretation of Dougie is that that is Frost and Lynch kind of mocking the image of Dale Cooper and Twin Peaks in general mm. that exists in the popular consciousness as just this kind of bright-eyed Boy Scout figure who is obsessed with coffee and pie. And like that that is the thing that everyone knows. Like if you talk about talked about Twin Peaks, those are the things that people knew, things about Dan, Dan Fine Cup of Coffee, um, people talking backwards. And that seemed to be what Dougie was to me, was like, okay, this is what you think. Weeks is it's less this kind of hollowed out thing it's not this vibrant intensely strange product that we created many many years ago totally i think it's really interesting because i think there are little pockets of um slightly more straightforward i hesitate to say narratives but almost like mm. little morality tales that are peppered throughout and i think the clearest one for me is and I agree with you. I think if Dougie is to be seen as this passive, lucky, chance the gardener being there mm. figure that everyone is essentially applying all of this intention and skill onto that doesn't have it at all. And that's where the humour is. And that's where the frustration mm. is, is looking at Norma and that Norma is like expanding the double R diner and that everyone mm. loves Norma's pie enormous pipe but you know they're just not making it the same way that Norma does with love and she doesn't want to sell out and she's like no you take it fine and I feel like 
you know, if, if anyone is Lynch in Twin Peaks, it's Norma. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that, but that definitely tracks in a major way because, like I say, everyone, like you said earlier, like everyone has tried to imitate or been inspired by what Twin Peaks did. And some people were very successful with that. You know, The Sopranos, I think it's probably the, the best example of someone, David Chase, watching Twin Peaks and thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life? <laughs> I need to try and create <laughs> something as good as this. Uh, and, and, you know, trying to push the medium because he was so just blown away by what, what um, Frost and Lynch were doing. And I think that that is something that you can kind of see in, in the normal thing with the franchise thing where there's this original thing that only one person can do and everyone else can try and get it, but they'll never be quite right. And and Lynch is kind of enjoying leaning into his kind of status as the true artist, I think. Mm. But the other thing I wanted to mention quickly if we're talking about characters being representative of certain um, figures in our world I know that's going to get mm. a bit tricky because there's so many story worlds that we're talking about but the, the the world of the story world of Twin Peaks is so immensely robust that you're able mm. to kind of come straight back in in a different way and not and it's just so fertile that was the thing that I couldn't get out of my head like you know you've got all these various different characters it feels like a real town it's not just you know the original cast um yeah you've got people who've been living lives and the two that I couldn't get out of my head were Bobby and Shelley, mm. who are in the original couple of series. They are the star-crossed lovers. And then they've clearly got together and had a child and they're not together anymore, but there's still probably something kind of there. And I feel that Bobby and Shelley are the audience. And I feel that they mm. are the audience through from the early seasons to now, because what, Bobby and Shelley do a lot of the time is that they are kind of really thrown about and and hurt by the narrative, but they also seem to bear witness the most mm. because the the moment that absolutely struck me and, and made me cry. Twin Peaks makes me cry. Most things make me cry, Ed. But <laughs> but the, the moment that really made me cry, and I think that a lot of people were really taken aback by, was how incredible. Um, Donna Ashbrook is and I think Lynch mm. just came, manages to get the most incredible performances out of people and the way that he sees Laura's picture oh um, god I mean the real there is a real trauma a real sense of actual loss there and you think mm. you know he's so aware of of um what he's of the loss there there's just so much and that pain and a sense of failure, just all on his face, all in that one kind of breakdown. And I feel like that's how we kind of see it too. And the other point that I think that really, and, and for, for Bobby, when there's the accident on the road and there's a woman mm. trying to get home and her child is having some horrific exorcist-like illness and it's just... That, that fragility of, you know, it, it's Lynch veering more into body horror in that mm. scene. And Bobby's just standing there and he's curious and he's struggling to know what to do. But what we watch is him watching this. That's the point of the scene, is yeah. bearing witness and feeling somewhat hopeless. And then with Shelley again, 
she is desperately trying to help her daughter, who seems to be stuck in some very Laura-like uh, situations, and mm-hmm. she can't. She's she's kind of at the whim of being, you know, trying to be a good mother, but essentially enabling addictive behaviour. But then when Norma and Big Ed, their love story finally comes together and we have such a sense of joy for them that these older star-crossed lovers who've loved each other for, what, 30 years <laughs> longer? At least. At least are finally together. And what do we see? The last beat of that scene is Shelley watching them crying with tears of happiness. And we mm. know that that's not what happened for Shelley, but she's so yeah. happy for Norma and Ed. But we we do not sit with Norma and Ed's happiness. We, see with, we sit with Shelley's witnessing of this. And I think mm. it's really interesting that there's this constant awareness of the audience and there's so much witnessing and observing and being caught. Like we, we can talk about the box <laughs> at some point, because yeah. I think we all want to talk about the box. But that was what struck me was that sense of we're more aware of the audience now. And we are kind of we have our own ciphers, I think, in a lot of what Bobby and, and Shelley do. I, th- I think there's also some of that with. I'm just going to have to make sure I get his name right because it's one of my favourite names in in anything ever. Um, With uh, Battling Bud Bushnell Mullins, uh, Dougie Jones' boss, when when Coop finally returns, when he returns in the 16th of 18 episodes, (laughs) which is uh, is incredible chutzpah on uh, Lynch and Frost's part. When he, he comes back and he says, and he's like, the FBI are looking to see you. And Cooper turns around and says, I am the FBI in that inimitable oh. Dale Cooper way. And then the, I, I believe like the next shot is just like a very brief look on, on Bud's face. And there is that sense of awe of, of this guy who he's been in awe of for like a week at this point because he's saved his company and completely and apparently befriended two of the most dangerous mobsters in Las Vegas and he's completely changed the lives of everyone he's been in contact with but you know that there is that sense that you're you're witnessing something like incredible and you know it is that moment that people who have been fans of Twin Peaks have been waiting for for 26 years uh, Sean T Collins who uh, wrote about the show for uh, for Rolling Stone and wrote some amazing uh, recaps of of the show uh, and, and just also, like, I think at the, when the show started in the first couple of episode airs, there were lots of people on Twitter who were just like, good luck recapping, recapping that. And like, there's this <laughs> kind of really um, antagonistic uh, approach to TV reviewers who are going to have to try and pass this. But I really do think that the show brought out the best in everyone who writes about television. Yes. Because you really had to, and I'm glad I didn't have to write about it, but certainly people who were writing about it had to use every fiber of their being to uh, kind of bring they had to raise their game in order to tackle this immense work even if they didn't like it you know they still had to engage it in a way that you don't usually with television entirely um, but but he said uh, uh Sean T. Collins said about on Twitter when you have spent 25 years worrying about whether someone's okay seeing that they're good they're fine is really overwhelming yes. and that was definitely the uh, impact of that moment on me. It's just kind of like, even though it ultimately proved to be short-lived, like even if things had ended more definitively happy for Dale Cooper than they do in the show, you still only would have spent like two and a half hours with him at that, at most. 
but you know it, it was really just kind of like him witnessing the return of this kind of brilliant this brilliant person into the world was um again it was a witnessing thing of someone just like being there to observe and see and experience something incredible happening in the world and uh, incredible you know in every sense because some of the things that people witness are, are truly horrifying <laughs> in Twin Peaks. Yeah. And I think, um, and I think there is just generally that kind of. Um, I think there's something so spectacular about the return being the show of the time, like you were saying earlier, in terms of how does it not only fit into kind of peak TV but culture now, and how yeah. robust it is to include that sense of what is actually going on, the horror yeah. and the fear of that and how kind of using that through allegory somehow is more powerful and accurate than displaying things directly Mm -hmm. I feel like watching it I was like oh as it went on so much of it is this internal criticism of narrative and trying to Mm -hmm. apply an easy narrative and to find a simple answer for things that there are so many different elements and people in the world with different agendas and I was thinking a lot about the fact that in this series obviously we play a lot more with the idea of doppelgangers which is suggested at the end of the second season Mm -hmm. and then comes into fruition here and I mean the show is called Twin Peaks like Mm -hmm. there is a sense of extremity and duality here and mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, particularly with Coop, because there's this sense of like what the real Coop is and how Dale Cooper is such a inherently good and striving for good and in no way, particularly in the first couple of seasons, in no way naive. Like he's mm-hmm. smart and he's compassionate and he's strong in a way that I have yet to see still in other male TV protagonist. I think the closest you could get to with Dale Cooper is Doctor Who, really. Like yeah. maybe a sort of David Tennant doctor, like quirky but bright and but then I kind of started to lose track of how many different doubles or tulpas as the kind of yeah, what was it, episode fifteen or sixteen, we actually get down to the bottom of some um, Eastern philosophy. <laughs> of yeah, it's towards the end. Tibetan Buddhism of the idea of like this demonic thought made being that can live amongst mm. the world. And a bit that I absolutely loved is someone levying in the in the Black Lodge, someone levying at the Diane that she's manufactured. She goes, I know, fuck you. <laughs> which is that kind of joy that we have in suspending disbelief knowing that this is all manufactured but the thing that I found so striking about this witnessing of so much awful stuff and this bringing the idea of good and evil and truth and confusion to the forefront so much more was that you kind of begin with this duality and it ends up kind of being exposed to be futile and it's encouraging Mm. that multifaceted appreciation of things also in terms of like witnessing i think it would be remiss of us not to mention the most powerful 
certainly for me, the most powerful instance of someone witnessing something, which is the, the great and late Harry Dean Stanton uh, witnessing oh. the, the death of the young child who's run over by Richard Horne. Probably the, the worst character of the show in terms of just how truly reprehensible he is yes. um, that has been created. I mean, there's a few candidates. There's him, there's Chad, who's just awful. Um. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, uh, Richard Horn um, runs over this this small child and then the child is, is lying dead in the street and the mother is, is kind of holding him and crying. And Harry Dean Stanton, who had just seen the, the mother and the child playing earlier so he he got to witness this kind of moment of real kind of unabashed happiness and then this just the absolute worst thing that anyone can experience you know and, and seeing the Garmin Bosia like rise up out of the the mother and, and the, the the grief and the pain and being the one who just kind of like stands there silently and bears witness to know that this was a thing that happened uh, and and kind of going on to carry that on for you know the rest of his days which in the real world were not that many it turned out uh and i'm guessing probably not in the show as well (laughs) because obviously he looks 700 years old um but it was that that for me was just incredibly powerful this depiction of really human grace which is like obviously not something that's meant to be grace is meant to be kind of beyond human but it really was just this this person being willing to stand there and acknowledge to someone what they're going through without any kind of, without taking any of it on himself or trying to make it about him. You're so right. There's this near angelic sense of, um, I think grace is a really beautiful term for it. And I think Harry Dean Stanton's character, um, I mean, oh, Harry Dean, RIP, in that he can also see the souls you know, we're, we're, we see that boy's kind of life essence, soul, whatever you want to say, this kind of burning golden ember. And remember, the tulpa seeds are these little golden beads, but they're not they're yeah. not fire. They're, that's essentially this kind of golden fire that is crucial to the lynch pantheon of life and mm. this force reaching back up into the sky. So there's something very... And, and and Lynch really likes giving his older characters, I mean, Catherine Coulson as well, oh. RIP, the log lady, that it's not that they're somehow closer to death. There is this very Tibetan sense of like, they're closer to another world mm. in, in, in a way that the other characters aren't necessarily. And they have this wisdom and they have this kind of very, like you say, graceful, um, almost meditative because of course David Lynch is massively into his transcendental meditation so they they are characters who seem to transcend they seem to have a way of looking and seeing what is there that others don't and also the thing that struck me is when you when we go into that what I like to call the origin episode which I absolutely loved where we roll back the clock into the 50s and we're somewhere in New Mexico and uh, the atomic testing and then that seems to be talking about kind of the story world and Lynch's pantheon. Cause I think there's a lot of kind of like, it's very Greek myth, like in sort of various different deif, uh, deity sort of characters intermingling with mortals and hybrids and, and that kind of stuff um, in terms of the kind of the hubris of man. And I'm going to say man for a reason and, and come back to that, but um, to create this, 
to become as powerful like you know it was it was the nuclear that's kind of point zero and through that we see this odd kind of intermingling of of worlds that this testing somehow brought these two worlds close together it blew a door between them and we see the creation of bob but then we also see in a cinema essentially mm. theater we see these who we the, the tall man or the giant as he was called in previous seasons but who now reveals himself to be called the fireman who is yeah. kind of as close to again maybe lynch in a kind of godlike creative but ultimately all seeing but distant and and well-meaning perhaps but mm. not quite and the kind of process where he and his um female counterpart seem to create in response to this evil that is bob they create Laura mm. as some kind of balm in the world. Um, and, and But they are essentially watching. They're watching and they're reacting, but they're not acting. And I think there's something yeah. really interesting about that kind of, and, and that our world is theatre for these beings, um, which could get quite quite trippy and almost veer into Scientology if we're not careful. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was also what I thought about in terms of, in terms of witnessing. Yeah, and to get into the the origin episode, episode eight, which even as it was airing, was very much everyone was just basically saying, "Oh, this is the greatest thing that's ever aired on television," or "This is the most yeah. powerful and strange work of, of artistic expression that anyone has dared to air on a nominally mainstream American television program." I think it's it's very interesting in that it does crystallize so much about what Lynch thinks of the nature of evil and and uh much as uh, you know you said earlier that, that you debuted not long after twin peaks did um <laughs> david lynch debuted into the world not long after the atomic bomb did yeah uh, he was he was born in 1946 the the the, the atom bomb testing all took place in, in 1945 or that you know obviously that was wow. when um when hiroshima and nagasaki happened yes and you know that meant that he was of the first generation of people who just grew up under the under the shadow of the mushroom cloud. Essentially, it's like this is a thing that exists in the world. We could all die at any moment, and that is that is just how you're going to have to encounter the world. Now you have this concern that didn't affect you, didn't affect your pa- uh, didn't affect your parents, didn't affect your grandparents, and it really seems to, to crystallize to him the point at which mankind's capacity for good was overtaken by its capacity for destruction yes. and that and like you say that opens the gateways for these these primordial evil forces that had clearly existed long before if anyone's read or, or listened to the audiobook of the secret history of twin peaks which is kind of a fascinating uh, addition to the to the mythos that doesn't really explain anything but certainly provides a lot of backstory um there's lots of stuff in there about how these forces have existed for a very, very long time. They're not new to the world, but they could only kind of come through in bits and pieces here and there, uh, in kind of special sacred places, such as as the um, the Alcane and things like, and, and Glastonbury uh, Grove in Twin Peaks, or just outside of Twin Peaks itself. Mm. And certainly the detonation of the atomic bomb in that episode, it is the point at which something like Bob and something like Judy can make their presence in the world more fully felt. Yeah, and there is that kind of oddly, I hesitate to say religious, but it does 
in terms of religions, essentially, you know, sacred texts of religions are collections of stories. They're anthologies of this is what happened and this is what we learn from them. And with that, I think Lynch touches on so many things about, you know, religion, but also dogma in terms of opening a portal Mm. to hell. Like this is idea of like summoning demons and that, you know, we have the angels of our nature and the demons of our nature and we're incredibly powerful, but ultimately we we can kind of be vessels for those forces and, and use them as we want, which is what I love about the um the Cockney green gloved Yeah. <laughs> who has, you know, his destiny and he's talking to James Hurley. And there's something oddly kind of little touches of superheroes in mm. terms of the narrative as well. Like gods, as I've said, like in terms of Greek and Tibetan and even Christian but then you've also got, um, yeah, this kind of origin story and then all of these different kind of, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's Avengers Assemble, let's be honest, um, <laughs> towards the last couple of hours, uh, if you want to look at it that way. But I think there's something really interesting in terms of, and this is me going back to my point about man and, and mm-hmm. atomic, Lynch often gets levied as being a misogynist. Yes. And I absolutely cannot stand that reading. And I think that Lynch is one of the few directors, auteurs, who truly understands how dangerous it is to live as a woman mm. or to have any kind of feminine features. It's, it's in terms of characteristics. And I think I kind of want to give him, in terms of being the little progressive social justice warrior and i and i spell that w-o-r-r-i-e-r not warrior um that i am kind of points for the fact that uh denise is now promoted to the top of the fbi it was nice to see um the one trans character despite being played by a cis male actor still doing well and Mm. the way that people react to her but i feel more icky about the kind of disturbing orientalism the whole diane stuff uh that's something i can get onto a bit later but in terms of lynch and his treatment of women he truly understands how dangerous it is and bob is for me the kind of crux of what is essentially toxic uh, toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and laura is the patron saint of all of people who've been abused and and she is this kind of seemingly perfect blonde prom princess and i can't remember the name of the show that's that's bad of me but i think mark frost and david lynch originally met on working on a show about marilyn monroe and yes they got knocked back and then decided to use those kind of themes and that was one of the original seeds of twin peaks so i think there is mm. generally that kind of idea of there's always been that kind of conspiracy shady forces within um, Twin Peaks's DNA from that original kind of um, show about Marilyn and Laura is that kind of Marilyn figure to be so. And I think she's Laura is such an incredible. And I mean this in a kind of academic way, criticism of um, femininity and what it's like to live as a woman, the idea of like this kind of projecting this perfect, beautiful image and then how that's abused throughout because the most evil people throughout Twin Peaks are rapists and Mm. men who abuse resources and are manipulative to women and I think 
you know, the heroine is is a woman who's been abused and any good man is someone who has more feminine characteristics. And I think Dale Cooper is the thing that was so crushing, I think, was to see the spirit of Bob could turn even the best man into this horrific abuser. And I remember so clearly in season one where you have this flirtation between Audrey and Cooper and he's very complimentary to her and it's clear that she just absolutely adores him because why wouldn't you like look at the father she has and the situation that she's growing up in and she adores her brother Johnny who's um severely disabled and Dale Cooper comes in and, and she wants to help him and then she turns up uh in his bed <laughs> and I think we can all say it's very if Sherilyn Fenn turns up in your bed <laughs> It's very hard to tell him to shift it, but he does because he doesn't take advantage of her. And it's a real struggle because you know that he, he, that he does love Audrey in some way, but he respects her and he's not mm. going to just use her for his own advantage. So to then find out as Mr. C inherited by the spirit of, of Bob, you know, he rapes her and, and Richard is the result. Mm. It's, it's just devastating, but I don't think Lynch is misogynist. We can, we can, I'm not qualified to talk about his representation of race. It's yeah. it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I know that as much, and I and that's definitely a could do better next time, David, on the report card. But in terms of how he treats gender, I think he is the only person who's kind of telling it how it is, which I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I, I definitely am not qualified to talk on his depiction of, of gender in the way that, that you are, but. That is that is definitely the the sense that I get just from the fact that all of the men in the show, except for for Dale Cooper, are are pretty monstrous. I mean, Ed Hurley as well. There's like a few good guys in there, but like you say, they're all people who are more gentle. They're soft. They and are they're kind. They're compassionate. You look at um, Andy, for example. Oh, mm. can we just talk another moment that was a just genuine fist pump in the air moment for me was that. Um, <laughs> Andy and Lucy got together and had their baby and it turned out to be Michael Cera pretending to be Marlon Brando. Like, yeah, I was happy with that. <laughs> I was very happy to find that out. Um, but yeah, they are all, and it's a kind of, it reminds me a lot of kind of Wes Anderson's representation of masculinity and what it is to be strong. Mm. And it's, it's a lot about kind of embracing your feelings and yes. not, not kind of dissuading your, intuition and, and intuition and instinct are kind of classically coded as feminine or to you know look nice in a suit or appreciate things or you know the fact that dale cooper notices and and compliments audrey's perfume is just one of it's one of the sexiest moments in tv <laughs> ever and it's not and it's not predatory mm. which is key whereas like even before you find out i mean it, i think the show tips its hand to the fact that Richard is the result of, of, of Mr. C raping Audrey. Like, it's fairly... I don't know at what point I kind of realised it, but it was the one mystery of the show that I was pretty certain of yeah. from a fairly early point, because you're thinking, well, he's pro he, he must be Audrey's child, and every behaviour he exhibits suggests that he is the kind of the, the product of something truly terrible that had occurred um but even before he, that is made explicit which is actually only acknowledged after he's dead 
<laughs> which again is a very funny thing that, that um, Frost and Lynch did uh, for me in terms of their passing out information very uh, sparingly. Um, yes. You know, like you see him murder that uh, that woman who had betrayed him um, as part of the heist and his interactions with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character are very just kind of transactional i guess or mm. they are very just kind of he does view her as just an object to satisfy him in the moment but also to uh, carry out his plans and he does view sex as a way of controlling her and making sure that she's on his side uh in you know whatever criminal activity that he has and that is incredibly disturbing to see because you are going from this person who like you say, is is kind of the embodiment of everything good in Lynch's moral universe to someone who just exhibits the exact opposite of every trait that Cooper had. Uh, and, it's, and it's very, yeah, it's very upsetting. <laughs> Hugely, but then there's something incredibly real about mm-hmm. it. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about Dougie and this yeah. idea of um, it's not... And it's interesting, it's, it is kind of a... Um, backlash to this idea of oh isn't it cute and look at all the outfits and kooky kooky kook like it's like no this is real this is severe like there's something oddly kind of um because cooper is ultimately self-sacrificing and he is this christ-like figure Mm. and in the way that he does that again with making sure that um janie janie and sunny jim have have a father you know he gives them a good tulpa yeah um, in order to but the other thing that i find interesting is that in terms of these multiple versions of characters and particularly using them to assess masculinity i've been watching rick and morty a lot recently Mm. and i think we're all just that much more because we're such a highly literate audience viewership now narrative makers have to go above and beyond and I think there's something really interesting in terms of losing count of how many Coopers there are and which one's quote-unquote good and which one's quote-unquote bad and how um in Rick and Morty for example the multiple times that we've seen and we know for a fact that there are different Rick and Mortys out there in this you know seeming this infinite universe how can we assume that it's the same Rick and Morty we're following between episodes? Mm, yeah. You know, there's this kind of, it kind of makes you assess like how you're actually viewing something and how much you're willing to take in terms of mm-hmm. what you're given. And I think there's something very brave to say, and there's more because there's more at stake because we now know that Cooper isn't infallible and he isn't impermeable to these evil forces. That's mm-hmm. when he says, in that moment of I am the FBI, you just get, I'm shivering thinking about it because there's such a genuine, that's a genuine return. It's Mm. not like um, Stephen Moffat, just a big red red reset button. Everything's fine, there's no consequence. There are genuine consequences, but then that is a genuine win. Mm. Yeah, because you have gone from this situation where you can see how much the world has curdled in Cooper's absence and also in the presence of, of Mr. C, the fact that you had this dark version of Cooper with all of his brilliance, but none of his morals, 
just going out and ruining the world. Curdled is such a good way of putting it, Ed. That's absolutely Thank brilliant. You. I love that. And I think <laughs> and I think what's also interesting is running along these lines of uh, gendered power. I think Sarah Palmer has just, I mean, I love Grace Zabriskie so much. Mm. And it was wonderful to see, again, this kind of, I'm thinking of um, Angels in America where characters at the you know threshold of revelation are able to kind of see each other in more fantastical ways than maybe is available to mere mortals and I think she's permanently on that threshold of revelation which is absolutely you know through the worst thing that can happen to anyone in terms of her pain but what she can see and what she can and I think again I don't think anyone can watch that interaction in the bar with the trucker and come out of it saying that Lynch is a misogynist like in terms of you know it's given me a great um new alternative to if someone tries to be persistent with me at a bar it's like oh no I just need to open up the void to all eternity in my face (laughs) because (laughs) that works a treat and she is a Mm. a source of immense power in the same way that the log lady was too and that she is in in that much pain but still kind of there's something kind of um I'm in awe of her as she's kind of the martyr but in a way that she's kind of determined to still you know she's not going to kill herself she's going to keep on going and there is that strength to her and that she knows how to use her uh qualities and her wiles and how she's read by other people to her advantage i thought that was that was incredibly satisfying to see i must say Mm. in to to kind of like go back to let's talk about the box the box because i mean you said about how um like part of of the point of the return is and and like the relationship with dougie and and how he relates to the rest of the show and the idea that lynch is is saying your idea of what Twin Peaks is incorrect (laughs) Um, or or you remember it for being this kind of like sunny occasionally campy thing whereas it is a it was an attempt to essentially make a very mainstream television show about abuse and rape and incest and about the about the the great capacity for evil that exists below respectable a respectable world and how no one examines it and no one is willing to confront it until yeah, you get an outsider who comes in. One of the things I thought was really interesting in terms of because because he made that argument with Fire Walk with me in a major way because that was basically saying, okay, this is what was bubbling under the surface of the TV show all along, but I couldn't show it because mm-hmm. there's limits to what I can get away with on TV. Although what he got away in TV was still some of the most upsetting things I've ever seen, like the death of Maddie. Oh. I always. I always cite as literally the most upsetting sequence I've ever seen in a television program. Without a doubt. Uh, it's so horrible. Um, and one of the the, the, the the opening moment of Firewalk Me was a television being smashed, which was very much like Lynch in, in a very simple visual way. Essentially, you're saying, this isn't a TV show anymore. This is something much... This is very different. And I thought the, the box served a similar purpose for people i mean i don't people must know what we're talking about because why would you this has been 50 minutes of nonsense if you haven't watched the return (laughs) um 
like the whole idea of the box is a box, this glass box set up in a in a, a building in New York, and a guy is hired to sit there and watch it interchange the memory cards in his camera, and then um, a, a, this girl that he's clearly got a romantic interest in comes to visit him. They start having sex, and then some creature who I assume is Judy, mm. but it's not nothing. Nothing's explicitly stated in Twin Peaks, but I assume no. it's Judy or some representation of her of its power comes through and kills them. That to me also felt like a statement of intent because it's very easy to read the box as a metaphor for television and the way that he approaches it as just kind of like this passive observer who just sits there and stares at the thing and nothing is expected of him. And then something comes out of it because the barrier between the thing he's observing and himself turns out to not be as strong as he expects and i feel like that is lynch lynch's mission statement for twin peaks the return it's basically him saying you think you know how to watch television i'm going to change your mind about that that's an excellent reading of it i really like that (laughs) i think the box also for me is so heavily it's so allegorically dense because Mm. there's this sense of this lack of transparency but there's definitely some kind of hierarchy corporate surveillance thing going on Mm. which to me felt very much a comment on that sense that maybe not only are we watching but we're all being watched now yeah and it felt very much like the internet as well like this kind of staring into this void (laughs) Mm. um so it's not just television it's it's this kind of watching upon watching upon watching upon um things happening and i think and the way that lynch always uses sex which is something hugely transgressive um and that there's that kind of um almost slasher teen horror trope coming through like if you're in any way promiscuous you're gonna die um Mm -hmm. And coupling that sex scene with the later sex scene um, between Diane and Cooper, Mm. which is so emotionally raw and um, distressing. I read a big theory, and I've totally forgotten the name of the guy who did it. That's very bad of me. But I think you know the one I mean, where sex somehow seems to kind of call Judy or kind of Mm. invoke the spirit like summoning and I think yeah uh, so I'd agree with you there's definitely that kind of malevolent force that's in that box but it's interesting because it seems to be kind of roughly at the same time when Cooper's trying to get through the Black Lodge yes because the timeline of Twin Peaks is kind of hard to pass like it's more at least you can kind of say when things are happening but Cooper appears in that box during the very brief period of time in which the guy has left to go and get coffee and they discover that the security card has mysteriously disappeared. Yes. And, I and then he disappears again. And, and he disappears again. they die. <laughs> and then, yeah, horribly. And throughout the series, these bizarre bodies turn up without heads and it seems mm. to be that very few people can actually survive travelling between the worlds. It seems like... Um, it reminds me of uh, Dogma, Kevin Smith's film, where you can't hear the voice of God, otherwise your head will explode because you actually can't uh, contain it as a mortal. Mm. And it seems to be that kind of thing as well, where 
and I almost wonder was it Judy or was it just Cooper trying to get through and as much as we desperately want Cooper to get through if the energetic consequence is that these kids die because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time who knows but yeah the box was just so and it's so brutal and I remember watching that and and just thinking oh my god again like what a great another like the top 10 of the most upsetting things I've ever seen in TV are all now all now Twin Peaks cool <laughs> yeah the, the the also thing with the box that I think is really fascinating is like there's there's this idea I think a lot of people who disliked the show or wasn't who weren't entirely on board with it where they were they were asking this question of like you know it doesn't fit my criteria about what satisfying television and storytelling are does that mean that it's bad does that mean that that David Lynch doesn't know what he's doing and there are lots of moments dotted throughout Twin Peaks The Return where he nails conventional moments of tension mm-hmm. or suspense or humor or horror so well that it and and the 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 killing of the two the two people out by the creature in the box is like so emblematic of that because it is you know they're having sex it keeps cutting back to the box it cuts to the cameras looking at the box it cuts to them it cuts to the box backwards and forwards the box starts slowly darkening and it's such an expertly put together sequence of of building dread and horror it's like we all know something's going to happen we may not know quite what's going to happen, but we know it's not good. I agree. Um, I think, and I think Lynch uh, is just has always been a director who's so brilliant at tapping into those absolute primal forces. Mm. He puts that. I feel like an animal watching Twin Peaks. I feel like a like a very vulnerable mammal. Mm. And the other example, I think, uh, to go back to the sea, to to the idea of Diane as a tulpa, the scene where that is discovered you know, before she goes into Gordon's office and uh, is there with Albert and Tammy, um, she picks up a gun and she puts it, puts it in her purse. And it is such a a Hitchcockian uh, example of building tension. It's the, the box under the table, you know, the idea that, you know, you can just have a bomb explode and it will shock people, but you can tell people there is a bomb and people will be on edge. And that whole sequence is just such a, a great example of him demonstrating essentially, oh, I know how to do all this stuff. Yeah. The fact that I'm not doing it all the time means that I'm not interested in it or, or it's not serving my purpose. So I need you, the audience, to come to me and figure out what my purpose is. Yeah, you're so right. And I think there's something really satisfying about just having those little almost like um, anchor points of what we're familiar with because mm-hmm. it contrasts off the stuff that we just haven't seen before in a more satisfying way, like it's better to know the rules and break them and than, yes. than just be doing whatever. And the one that, the eeriest moment, the moment I was actually the most terrified in watching t- in uh, The Return, I think it's episode one where you mm-hmm. see, it's quite early on, and you just see Jacoby kind of pottering about in the woods. And oh, yeah. it's shot from quite a far away angle, but at a really odd angle that feels kind of predatory, but almost in a kind of like blank drone CCTV-like way. And it's mm. and it just holds, and you are just almost desperate for something to happen just to relieve the tension. Like I felt sick watching that because it's such a malevolent angle, and I was like, God, there's nothing else going on here, but I just know it's not right. Uh, I was going to say that I had a very similar kind of uh, kind of sinking feeling in my stomach watching 
the long unbroken take of that guy just sweeping up <gasps> the roadhouse oh. because it lasts for so long and it does for the entirety of the song that's playing in the background and it's one of many moments in Twin Peaks, like people talk about being slow or him just taking ages to do everything, which is is true, but like I do feel it's all towards purpose. But there's lots of moments like that that are really just about creating a sense of texture and playing with your your emotions or just kind of providing a buffer between the, the various different tones uh, in a given episode. And that was one for me where you just spend so long expecting something to happen and then you know, the, the, the remaining Renault um, family member just answers the phone and has a conversation that doesn't really amount to much. But the fact that you are forced to kind of just sit in that moment, in this moment of like real voyeurism, in mean, kind of like a Michael Haneke kind of moment, <laughs> is really powerful and does make you go th- cycle through all of these emotions where you're just trying to think, how am I meant to feel? Am I meant to be scared that something's about to happen? Am I meant to... F- find the fact that nothing's happening kind of funny. Yeah. That David Lynch argued for 18 episodes of television and he decided that five minutes of it was going to be just of someone sweeping up a bar. Um, I love uh, the, yeah, the chutzpah of that. And I think Haneke is an excellent reference because there is so um, heavily that sense of kind of like, as we've spoken at length already, like watching, waiting, um, Mm. the malevolence of voyeurism. But I agree with you, like, I found that initially very tense and then absurdly funny because it just made me think of the infamous rake uh, thwack to the face (laughs) sequence with Sideshow Bob. Um, But then there is also um, when uh, Gordon and Albert are talking and um, Gordon is entertaining that lovely lady Mm. and he and you have, again, these two different audience responses to her taking so long to get ready and to leave. Gordon's just like, it's all foreplay. And Albert's like, for the love of, I just need to talk to Gordon. So <laughs> it's that awareness of, right, either you're into this or you're not. Like, this is how we're doing it. And I think that was really funny as well, just to see that. Oh, I know I know what you're doing. I, I know what I'm doing. I know how you're feeling. Here's a, here's a nod <laughs> to that. Uh, and this also ties into a... Yeah, when we were talking about um, like what we wanted to talk about on this this episode, um, like that, I, I just phrased that like a Raymond Carver collection. Um, <laughs> but the um, you know one of the the points you brought up, or one of the things that you said on Twitter about Twin Peaks, that made me think, okay, I really need to talk to Emily about this. Was you were talking about how Twin Peaks is an example of a kind of a poetic television show, and uh, that really kind of. Uh, spoke to me and was like a really kind of something that really kind of sparked me off because I do feel like that is a key part of what makes the return so interesting because there are like patterns and repetitions in it you know there's little repetitions in that sometimes you will have a single line of dialogue that is said 30 times mm-hmm. um, like got a light <laughs> which is terrifying oh. uh, in every permutation of it um, but the fact that there are instances in there, or the other one, which gets less play, but it's so awful, which is like, hello, Johnny, how are you today? During the scene of Richard uh, Horn smashing up his grandmother's house. Oh, yeah. Um, and I do think that that's, that's really an interesting example of him exhibiting the fact that he is an artist who is famous for being a director and wildly successful and acclaimed for that, but someone who has, you know, a background in performance art, in painting, the fact that he does introduce these things which are really there 
to create mood and texture that do not have anything to do with the traditional ideas of what we think storytelling is. I'm so glad I tweeted that. I'm really glad. I was, <laughs> I was in two minds, but now we're here and I'm so pleased. So I'm really glad that resonated with you. And, and that's, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that in terms of that kind of repetition, I think Dougie's um, echolalia is really interesting and mm-hmm. in that he kind of repeats the last bit of what anyone says to him. And there's a different resonance when he says it that is almost like a poetic technique. Um, yes. And I think what's so satisfying about the return and how Lynch has always approached conventional narrative. I mean, a lot of people will, will say the straight story or the elephant man is my favorite David Lynch film, because of course the straight story is kind of a joke in mm. within it. So even when Lynch is trying to tell a straightforward narrative, he has to signpost to you that he's doing it because yeah. that's what's so funny about it. And I think um exactly that like uh, talking about his um background in performance art and that he's an artist and I think because you know he paints (laughs) and Mm. and I think television is just a different medium for his art rather than and, and and it's pushed tv forward um as we've said and I think the thing that I found so striking, you know, being someone who's trained in classical narrative storytelling and has developed scripts and has read, you know, Truby and, and McKee and all that lot, to have the first six episodes of The Return kind of all feel obviously like off the wall, what's going on, but kind of clustered together. And then going into episode seven, it feels like things are picking up, but then you're dropped again and you think, oh, this isn't going to be a three-app structure of six, 12, and 18. Mm. You're just constantly kind of like, it's something that I call the Final Fantasy um, narrative because when I was younger playing Final Fantasy, it always starts with you're, you're a protagonist in an unknown world and you have a quest and you solve the quest, but in solving that quest, there's this kind of coral reef drop-off in which it leads you into a much deeper, darker world. Mm. And you are immersed in it and things, the stakes immediately get higher, but all off the back of kind of this initial quest. And I feel like this is the coral reef drop-off point. We are in the deep, dark blue ocean here. And I think Lynch is in terms of talking about our time now, simple narratives just don't cut it anymore. But there are things that, to plug past tense, the podcast I produce again, um, Fiona Barnett, who's my friend who's um, researched, written and presents it, goes back to that old adage of um, history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. And that was Mm. the thing that struck me about Twin Peaks is that if you don't apply a classical storytelling narrative where you have, you know, essentially a major dramatic question, and in the first couple of seasons that was presented as who killed Laura Palmer, but then you'd find meaning through that and conflict and stakes, and the first couple of seasons did essentially follow those lines. You had, as I think Wikipedia terms it, healthy doses of surrealism, which I I love Mm -hmm. the idea that there's a recommended daily allowance of you could have a healthy (laughs) dose. This the return is then using that kind of poetic resonance instead of a plot. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of kind of um, going back to that Tibetan Tulpa awareness of these archetypes kind of beginning to realize that they're manufactured 
and it kind of that's how I felt about the end and I think the only way that I could kind of come to some sort of um uh come to terms with the end was to look at it as, as a more poetic way and that it's less about the world of Twin Peaks and more about how all these different the story world our real world all interact and how we find them I don't know where they fail where they succeed what our hopes are and I think Lynch is just so brilliant at creating a tone and an atmosphere that that feels poetic and I think Mm. and he's aware of this like the biggest laugh for me in this series is when Hawk Lucy and Andy have everything set out and they're like what's missing this huge table of evidence and Lucy starts to scream and she goes oh my god it's the chocolate bunny I ate the chocolate (laughs) bunny it's me that's the thing that's missing and Hawk just goes and it's the angriest we've I think ever heard Hawk be it's not (laughs) about the chocolate bunny and then a beat and then is it you know even (laughs) everyone's still trying to figure out what what meaning is but there is definite good there is definite evil there are definite kind of like forces at conflict but in terms of how we assess them it's different and I think it's I found it more satisfying to watch as a critique of that of like actually trying to find meaning and neatly tie things up which is easier to tell as like a poem or, or a painting I think in uh in those mediums than like but it's but it but that is what I think is such an astounding feat is that it is a criticism of trying to find a simple narrative and yet it seems so open-ended the the idea of rhyming is something that I find really fascinating about it as well because the show is so in conversation with its own past in a way that you would not expect from a 25 years later reboot no like usually when things reboot you have something like, you know, the 21 Jump Street thing where Johnny Depp shows up in the last scene or whatever to be like, hey, you know, it's this guy from the old thing, you you recognise it, or they'll make kind of like funny jokes or whatever, or you'll get in more serious things, you know, and you'll get the 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 X-Files reboot where they find some way to get the lone gunman back in because the fans like them. Um, like, The Return is so much about exploring the ways in which patterns repeat throughout history um you can see that with becky the amanda seyfried character who in some ways is like you say she has certain laura-like tendencies because of the 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 drug angle of it and you know like there's that whole sequence where she's sitting in the car and she's looking up and the, the the light just kind of like becomes really overwhelming and that seems like the kind of terrible euphoria that Laura seemed to exist in a lot, particularly in in Firewalk with me. Mm. Uh, but but also she is in some ways reliving the patterns that her mother uh, Shelley went into. You know, with her relationship with Leo yeah. being involved with someone who is clearly bad for her, and that is obviously, I mean, the fact that it, her husband is played by Caleb Landry Jones, who, as I've talked about on this podcast with uh, our friend John Hunter, is like. He just looks evil. Oh. Like no offense, no offense to him, but like every time he's in something, he's like, "You're not paying a nice man." <laughs> I mean, get out. Let's remember. Ooh. Yes. And I think, yeah, I th- but it's fantastic because Caleb Landry Jones just has the most incredible face because it looks incredibly mm. kind of young and could be quite cherubic, which makes him all yes. the more. He he really plays it so that he can be just that much more sinister. He's superb, and I think a lot of the additions to the cast are just brilliant. And I've never seen performances like that out of them. So again, that's kind of testament to Lynch. But I think 
it's also about that kind of in terms of this rhyming history repeating itself but it's also about kind of emotional inheritance and trauma mm. like yes you know these these people have grown up in these formative experiences and of course that carries on so there's something inherently human about that seeing that repeating itself and how awful it is and what has changed and what hasn't that that really speaks to i think bobby as a character because bobby on one level has broken a pattern because he has escaped the troubles of his youth he's become a police officer he is he is he has become a more he is he has become more of a lynchian masculine figure in that he's a lot kinder he tries to be a good father and things like that he certainly seems to be a more loving and less and, and less distant father than his own father who was so restrained and we only find out through notes he left for his son many years later how much he loved him um because don s davis great actor but just gave off that air that he would never ever hug anyone <laughs> like, that, that's, that's just the vibe that he gave off he he had that's why he always played generals <laughs> authority figures that's just the kind of man that he he was and you get the sense that that bobby is towards becky he's he's obviously you know he tries to help her out he lends her money he does all of these things he tries to be a, a as helpful and supportive of father as he can but that but he's also you know he's separated from shelly he doesn't he's not as involved in becky's life so like a new pattern or a variation on the old pattern is still repeating because even though he is not the person that he was growing up and he's escaped that and even though he hasn't become his father he is still he's still repeating some of the the problems he's not able to form a kind of supporting loving family that he didn't have as a, a child that he would want to create for his own child completely and i think bobby's you're so right he's he's kind of the pinnacle of that because i was thinking back again to that incredible scene of, of him seeing laura and maybe part of that is him seeing his own child of seeing becky in that frame and mm. I think there's something really fascinating about the fact that even though he's calmed down a lot and, you know, after being the tearaway, he's now in the sheriff's department. He's not really left, but there's something really wonderful about seeing him kind of not want to do that anymore and essentially turn turn good or get better. Um, but I think what's so interesting is is the kind of relationship with his father particularly in terms of what his father's been doing and how it reveals how deep his father went in terms of um, Blue Rose cases and um, how a lot of the signals that he seems to be sending are to his son in terms of that place they always used to go. Is it Jack Rabbit's Palace, I think it's called? That they Yeah. And so the key is essentially Bobby remembering something and still living in the past, that he can remember mm. something from a child. And there's he's kind of in this in-between space where... I mean, it's it's hugely liminal, but he, as a character, if you were to plot it in a classical arc, he's done a huge amount of change that we haven't seen, but he's still never really left. No. He's kind of, he's he's got better, but there's something that he's not able to move on from or leave behind, and maybe he doesn't want to, because I think it's quite clear that he's still very much in love with Shelley. Um, yes. And can't and can't leave so there's just so much very human heartbreak amidst all of this quite surreal stuff yeah because the 
the thing with Twin Peaks always was that it had this reputation, you know, it had this, these surreal dream sequences, it had the, this kind of nightmarish imagery and it was quirky and strange, but it was always rooted in these very common or garden everyday things. You know, trauma is the, the driving force of the show, both in a thematic sense, because that, that's the thing that it's all about. It's about the effect of the, the trauma of this young girl's death has on this town and how that reverberates through ultimately through decades, but also in terms of how the Black Lodge operates, you know, Garmin Bosia is the grief and terror and every negative emotion that comes out of of horrible things. And that's why, like, Laura as a character, you know, the, the, the reason why Bob stayed in that house was that the abuse that he meted out against Laura through Leland just created this never-ending stream of, of nourishment for him mm. uh, in this kind of, this really horrible way. And that's why her death was not part of the plan. Like, that, that the plan for Bob was always that he would s- stay in that house and eventually possess Laura at some point and kind of continue the cycle on. That's kind of like the, how my interpretation of it. And so her dying was both hugely tragic obviously because you know she's a young girl and as we know she now she was this kind of force for good put into the world by the fireman and again please i hope people have listened to this, watch trippings <laughs> because seriously this is nonsense but it was also like when i've rewatched fire war with me before the return it ended up being this weirdly triumphant moment because her death was a loss for bob yes that wasn't what was meant to happen she did not allow herself to be corrupted in the final analysis. And, you know, like you can, you can layer on all of the complex mythology that, that Frost and Lynch created and all of this symbolism. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the story of a young girl who was abused by her dad and who only found escape through death. At which point she became this angelic figure. I mean, yeah, there's no there's no kind of, like, doubt about, like, oh, what does that mean? She's a freaking angel heading up to yeah. heaven. Like, they're just plain as day. Lynch is like, you know, I want there to be an afterlife for mm. her, for people like her, for the little boy that gets run over in the road. I want there to be some sense of justice, even if it's not clear, even if it's messy. Like, and I think there's a very, again, very human desire for that but so much of Twin Peaks is accepting it's not as simple as that and that is a very human human construction and that that ties into what the log lady says in one of her last lines where she says you know death is not an end it's a change Mm. which again is a very Tibetan transcendental meditation kind of thing but I think I mean that this was kind of like what I thought of as the, the show's main theme this time around is like the pain of living which i think plays into like all the witnessing stuff but also the limitations of death because and that plays out in the fact that there is an afterlife in the show and that people die but they can do some good like they can leave notes in the way that um that major briggs did you know he left behind this tray of clues for his son to find to eventually help them in this battle against this great evil, but in kind of a metatextual sense, like a lot of people who worked on the original show are dead now. I know. Um, Cause it's been 25 years. Like we lost Jack Nance. 
We lost uh, Frank Silver, Don S. Davis, who mentioned earlier, David Bowie, who, like, wasn't, you know, he's obviously in Firewall with me and was only in a few scenes, but, like, he was a big part. He ended up being a big part of the mythology and, and was recast in the most creative way I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> and, and then, like, Warren Frost and Miguel Ferrer both died just before the show came back. And Harry and Santon died just afterwards. Margaret, uh, uh, Catherine E. Coulson died years before the show went into production. Like, she and David Lynch just filmed all of those scenes of her talking to Hawk on the phone at least, like, a year or so before production started on the show. And I think it's really interesting that so many of those people still contributed. Like, Donis Davis's severed head showed up a fair bit through digital manipulation, as did Frank Silver's. Yeah. Um, they, 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 and there is like this sense that all these people who are, who are have passed on, are still part of Twin Peaks. They are still able to contribute to it, and there's something really beautiful in that. And that does seem to conform to the idea of Lynch's explored in the show that death is, you know. It's an imperm it's an impermanent thing. You know, it's permanent from our perspective as the living, but in a cosmic sense it's impermanent and the dead can still will still have a hold on the living, which I think is 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 really uh, a beautiful idea. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. I think there was something hugely moving about that and I think you're right, the metatextual way of the different worlds in which we inhabit and um what we leave behind. It is a really beautiful idea. And I think what's even more beautiful about it is that in Twin Peaks, life is both precious and cheap. Like it's seen as this great gift, but also it's seen as something that is because of the, the kind of people that exist in the world, both because they're possessed by demons and just because they're terrible. They they will take it and you know, people can die in ridiculous ways, such as the uh, Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee, who just get murdered by an accountant on a suburban street yeah. uh, where everyone's under a lot of stress as we as we learn but like there is there's always been an interesting tension in Lynch's work when it comes to violence and sex and death and things like that and and this kind of comes down to Roger Ebert's review of Blue Velvet, where he famously gave it one star and you know really hated it in his main objection to it was he says that it was a it was a movie that contained images of great violence and sexual abuse and all this sort of thing and that explored dark subject matter but the lynch to him always seemed to be standing back and smirking about it and i think that that is that's not entirely untrue because lynch is someone who always has kind of a slightly ironic remove but what ebert didn't understand there here am i right uh, lecturing Roger Ebert for 30 years later but like what he didn't get was that there is no uh, Lynch is able to exist in both spaces simultaneously he can be ironic and kind of look back on something and be like I understand that this is like how storytelling work and I'm kind of playing around with it but he also I think is entirely invested in the emotions of everything he's doing and that's why the original Twin Peaks was both this kind of like silly campy deconstruction of primetime soap opera tropes, but also this like deeply emotional work about trauma. Uh, and I think that those extremes are in, like even more 
on display even more fully in the return like we keep coming back to it the, the bobby scene where he just kind of like breaks down in tears you know like you have the old twin peak the old laura theme playing in the background mm. it's something that could be played kind of silly and it does seem out of place in the rest of the episode but it's just so powerful because lynch and everyone else is really invested in it completely and i think you're right it is more polarized in the return and i think there's something bold without being like frenzied about really kind of pushing that because I think he pushes the spectrum out wider but shows you more of the increments within it mm-hmm. um and I, I can imagine Lynch reading that review and probably being quite pained um yeah. because I think I've never felt that I mean I've always felt that Lynch was explicit but never gratuitous and yes I, yeah I, I can tell right and i and i think like and i that really struck me watching inland empire because i think the way that he manages to tune into and show the actual like frequency of someone's mental state emotional well-being just being completely ripped to pieces and the compassion that there is from that i've never felt watch ever watched a lynch thing and felt that it was exploitative mm. um from that from that point of view and he's I think he desperately does care about his characters and I think I think we're kind of coming ever so slightly towards the end because I'm starting to talk about the end but I think when you look at uh, for example Andy and Lucy in their part in episode 17 uh episode 17 episode 18 in the finale should we just say Mm -hmm. is it's meant to kind of it's one one of two one whole of two parts funnily enough more duality and Mm -hmm. uh and unity and I think the, the way that Andy and Lucy behave is almost like they're kind of possessed by a force greater than themselves but they're constantly narrating about what they're doing it's like they know it's almost like the kind of switch in terms of their purpose of what they are meant to do at this point they they kind of become aware of themselves as uh this is always used as a derogatory term but i don't mean it this way as plot devices like Mm. they understand their purpose and they're slightly robotic in doing so which i find really interesting it's kind of like they've just sort of tap like Lynch is tapping into what they're meant to do and I think that so much of the finale is about the different characters developing an awareness and also understanding like you said the limitations of death but also the limitations of what you can do as a character as a person Mm. in terms of what's available to you and there is so much pain in life and there's never really an end if there is never an end and everything is just kind of changing then good's never going to finally triumph over evil but evil's never going to finally triumph over good and i found that was my kind of reading and maybe i'm reading what i want into it but i felt that there was space for me to have that reading within it and at a time when we're, we're somehow talking about the possibility of nuclear conflict again it's incredibly comforting to be like this isn't anything new it's terrible but we've gone through this and we've come out of it and then there's something else so it's kind of this eternal battle which instead of being taking the easy way out and or kind of giving some kind of sentimental comfort that's ultimately not particularly genuine of everything's gonna be fine i think there's more this kind of awareness of what we can apply and maybe we need different tools now in terms Mm. of 
living through the pain of life and understanding limitations. I think the the idea of of Lucy and Andy realizing their plot devices is something that that they they function as plot devices uh, is something I hadn't thought about, but I think it does cast an interesting um, interpretation on what happens with Cooper, because, like I said at the start, like I think there are there's many interpretations of what happens in the ending, and like to run through it for for just kind of anyone needs a refresher, they defeat. Bob, um, the English guy with the massive Hulk hand, smashes him up uh, after Lucy shoots Dr. C, killing him and then freeing the kind of the Bob orb. Again, I really hope people have watched this. Because, <laughs> again, every every time I start describing things that happen in this show, I start thinking, am I insane? What, what insane even is... Yes, yeah. And then Cooper and, Laura, uh, and Diane... Um, also, Laura Dern, amazing. Like, I don't think that needs to be stated at this point. Like, it should be obvious that she's in something. She'll be great, but she was fantastic as Diane. Um, they travel to a point uh, in time and space, and then they seem to either travel back in time or to a- another dimension. It's not clear. And could they have sex, they separate, at which point... They have taken on the personas of Richard and Linda, who are two people that the fireman warns Cooper about in the first episode, in the first scene of the first episode of The Return. And then Cooper goes on this search for Laura Palmer. He finds a woman named Carrie, who is played by Cheryl Lee, but doesn't have any memories of Twin Peaks. They go back to Twin Peaks. They go back to the Palmer house and presumably to force some sort of final confrontation with the with Judy, who seems to have inhabited the body of Sarah Palmer, and then they get there, and Sarah Palmer isn't there, and then someone shouts, "Laura!" Cheryl Lee screams, all the lights go out, and then the show ends. Yeah. And there are there's two interpretations of it. Also, Cooper says, "What year is it?" and he seems befuddled by the whole thing, and like the idea of of the plot of uh, Andy and Lucy realising that they are plot devices, I think, is interesting. It makes me wonder if the tragedy of that scene is that Cooper doesn't realise that he's a plot device. And I think, he yeah. thought that he had more agency than he did because one of the interpretations of that ending, the kind of vaguely triumphal version, is that the plan all along was that the fireman and uh, Philip Jeffries, played by T. Kettle, no longer David Bowie. <laughs> um, their plan is to trick Judy into going into this pocket dimension and then bringing Laura there and then Laura experiencing this outburst of trauma that is so powerful that it essentially overloads Trudy, uh, Judy and destroys the pocket dimension and that's why all the powers go out and that essentially Cooper functions as like the the person who delivers the bomb that will kill him and Laura, but also defeat Judy. And so it's this kind of very sad, but ultimately that that's what happens is they triumph because they trap Judy in this place where she won't be able, she, it won't be able to get out. And one interpretation of that is that that Cooper knew about it all along, but in the kind of like the traversing of all of the different dimensions that he forgot that that was the plan. So that's why he's confused at the end. But part of me wonders if he never knew that that was the plan because he would never have agreed in his goodness to 
take Laura to a place where the end result is that they end up trapped forever yeah. in kind of some yeah. some kind of blocked off dimension. And I think there's something oddly it's I find that it's possibly an idea of like narrative determinism. Like if mm. you if you have the white knight and you put this white knight who's meant to rescue and all he thinks is that he's finally bringing Laura home. That's yeah. that is what Cooper has set out to do the entire time. He wants to find out who killed her and now, you know, he has a chance to put her to rest and he's then and in a he has a chance to save her because he very briefly goes back to 1989 exactly and almost pulls her out of the time stream but then judy seems to drag her back yeah or even um he's confused about the year but he seems to go mm. back to where we see you know some scenes from fire walk with me and um he you're right she you know we finally see who she sees in the woods and it's and it's cooper and he seems to be saving her from being murdered in the first place and saving her and putting Mm -hmm. her another dimension pete finally gets to go fishing Ah! (laughs) and and yet he's like what what year is this he's so confused about chronology about placement of time and and to have what you think is your entire purpose you know as a person but then also as a character to then have that taken away from you and I really like I like the idea that maybe it is some kind of horrifically tragic in that the world is entirely destroyed but at least Judy has gone with that Mm. in that you know we have these two forces finally brought back together and they're able to be cancel each other out somehow but I do think it's more about this kind of eternal recurrence of stories and uh, yeah. I, in terms of the release pattern, we weren't given everything in one go. We were given stuff mm. week by week. And I forgot how much I enjoyed that. And I'm enjoying that more and more um, as other people are doing that too with, with releasing different programmes. We couldn't binge it. We had to wait. We, it was kind of trying to get back what it was like to watch the season beforehand. So you couldn't... Everyone's kind of going at the same pace. And then... By the end of it, it's you can almost just start from the beginning again. There's mm. something, and I think it encourages you to do that. And I don't think there is one final mystery. And I think a lot of the return is putting, throwing in as many different possible narrative threads and different archetypes and little um, pockets of conflict as possible to defy... It's the ultimate kind of middle finger up yours, I think, to the... Um, original execs who said we need to find out who killed Laura Palmer because that's the question that you've set and that's not the point the point is not answering the question the point is living through that Mm. and having different ideas and um and and playing around with these different worlds but I do think a lot of it is like just Cooper's absolute distress at what he has always been promised and what he believes his purpose is is a very kind of I mean, if we're talking as Lynch as God, God type, and it's incredibly cruel, but also all knowing, <laughs> you know, Lynch is all knowing for these people, and um, they're not. And I think um, we were talking briefly. Discovered, I think there's an interview on Vulture with the woman who actually owns the Palmer House, and who yes. is actually the woman who opens the door. Mm-hmm. And which is, an, again, just a brilliant little twist at the end that says there is someone who actually lives in that house. That house really exists in our world and they probably have a lovely domestic suburban life. 
and <laughs> they sound like such good sports in terms of taking people Twin Peaks fans around on tours and she mentions in this interview how lovely how much she enjoys seeing the joy that it brings to people's faces just being in her house mm. so there's a weird nice thing about it as well there and um I think it's again really interesting that you know for Cooper to kind of succeed Laura almost has to revive her trauma or not or not Laura this woman who looks incredibly like Laura and also may I just say how delighted I am that all of the women of Twin Peaks bar um Lara Flynn Boyle slash Moira Kelly uh return and are playing themselves and I think mm. it's really refreshing to see women playing their actual age I'm <laughs> absolutely smashing it <laughs> yeah and like with the kind of edge case of um Sherilyn Fenn where they have made they have deliberately made her up to try and look as much like Audrey looks when she was younger but mm. then that's revealed to be because she exists in some other space where it's always more or less the world that she last knew presumably because she's still in a coma or whatever and that's that's again is like the idea of like the fact you're watching it week to week that final payoff to that whole sequence suddenly i mean it didn't negate people's complaints about the whole audrey plot line because people said like it was like really sad and the way that it was treating her you know wasn't worthy of like a great character but then you were like oh but yeah she's also been in a coma for 25 years or whatever so obviously it's not going to be great for her and that's why this world is so so strange and these scenes are so off-putting because she is trapped in some space and her mind seems to be in some way eating itself completely and she was always you know we we get that once again she is dancing for an audience mm. And she's doing her dream dance. She doesn't want to do her dream dance. She seems to be in some horrible kind of forced trance. And then mm. that's what prompts her to wake up. Yeah. And I think that's really, again, pointing to this. We know what you say you want, fans of Twin Peaks. But do you really want that? It's mm. like maybe, you know, we're keeping them in that prison if we're just expecting them to behave in a way that we feel that we want them to behave and in that case, is it just a kind of zombified rerun? Um, but yeah, how do you, I feel like the ending, um, I had a chat with a friend of mine and he said that it's almost like the first half is if Mark Frost got his way and we settle with the characters themselves as much as possible. And then the last bit is essentially Lynch's epilogue. I can, I can definitely see that. I think I tend to push back on that just purely because from what I've read about Mar uh, Frost and Lynch's process and how they do everything, it is very much collaborative. And while the visuals and the tone is all Lynch, obviously, the actual writing and stuff is very much, they come up with the ideas and bounce them back and it's a very organic process. It's not very easy to point to, like maybe Lynch's, uh, Frost is more, based in the, the, the traditional storytelling structure and things like that. But they, for whatever reason, they chime off of each other so well that it's very hard to extricate, like, what's the, who did what. Completely. Um, 
Uh, but that that does feel as if that's the the one instance where I could look at that and say, yeah, I could totally see that like the first half is more Frost being like, okay, this is what I want to do. And Lynch saying, okay, you do that. I'm going to do this other thing. And then <laughs> we'll let people argue over which, uh, which ending they prefer. And in terms of just to go back to the idea of like recurring um, ideas representing the edit in the ending, I do think it's interesting that every season of Twin Peaks ends with Cooper, despite all of his capabilities and his capacity for goodness and his efficiency and, and being this kind of brilliant human being, it always ends with him put getting in over his head and suddenly realising that he doesn't have all the answers. And in the first season, it's more direct in that he gets shot because he hasn't quite figured out one element of the mystery. But the second one is that he thinks he can handle what the Black Lodge is and he prove, it proves to be bet it bests him in like a very very literal way. Yeah. Um, and then this one seems to be kind of like the cruelest version of it in that he has barreled ahead, thinking, "Okay, this is how we save everyone. This is how I save the world. This is how I save Laura." And then the end result of it is like both for him and us, like frustratingly incomplete. You're so right, and I think you know, and I think there's something inherently gothic about mm. that because the gothic was originally kind of a retort to I mean you could you could look at like William Blake as like proto-gothic right but Blake was essentially saying that you know humans need to know their place in the universe and mm. we can't pretend that we have mapped it and put it in our own measurements and believe that we understand it like you know he hated it. he was like bloody Newton and uh said that you know and, and the gothic is essentially all of the things that we do not understand and that sense of the uncanny, which I think Lynch just puts throughout everything, something that is organic, but mm. is something that we've still never seen before. So there's this consistent yeah. kind of alien reassessment and terror and wonder and awe of the process of being alive. And, um, and I think that's it. Like, Cooper is such a good man and he has such good he's the best of so much of humanity yet he is just one man and the forces of the world and its machinations in which we understand so I, I think there's something compassionately tragic about that rather than kind of like criticizing Cooper and setting him up to fail I think what we really see is this kind of Sisyphean Promethean character who wants to make things good and mm. we feel his pain at them not being as simply sorted as that and I really hope that that's all we have of Twin Peaks I'd really like yeah as much as I've loved this I mean we, we've been to I could talk about this with you for easily for another couple of hours and I think there's such yeah. a gift in being given something that is so endlessly watchable and discussable and uh it is a word and I don't actually want any more because it feels like that would be this feels oddly complete I think there's something holistic about this now in the whole world of Twin Peaks that any more would feel like that fan service it would tip into something else and that's why I said you know I Twin Peaks is essentially a poem it's an exhibition of on various themes using video art and performance 
but I want to see more of this kind of poetic approach to TV. I don't want to just see Twin Peaks over and over again because it is so rich and there's something so satisfying about its incompletion and its mm. deep mystery. Because if you were to solve the mystery, you would undo the world of Twin Peaks. And I think that's the point. Yeah. I think Lynch is like, but you don't really want to find out, do you? What done and dusted and then I know what you really want. <laughs> and uh, and he completely delivered, I think. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, there's the the new book that Mark Frost has written that's coming out at the end of this month uh, on Halloween as well, I think. But that's like, I don't imagine that's going to answer everyone's questions. It's not going to be just him kind of like laying out, okay, this is the answer to this. This is the answer to this. I think it'll be more more interesting. I hope it's like the, the secret history of Twin Peaks where it's like, just kind of fills in around the edges. But in terms of the the visual side of it, the television side of it, I keep coming back to a quote that David Lynch gave in one of the pre-release interviews where he said essentially that he views cable tv as the new art house as a new place for people to go and explore ideas and that to me suggests that he is more interested in pursuing a new idea using the same structure i mean whether or not he gets to do it without the Twin Peaks banner that, you know, obviously because it's a known property allowed him to do something wildly ambitious. But if we're going to get more work from David Lynch, I would much rather see him turn his hand to telling a new story within the medium of television than coming back in like three years to do more Twin Peaks. I but completely agree. If he does, sure, I'll watch it. Oh, <laughs> um, I'm but, so there. <laughs> yeah, but... But like in my heart of hearts, I would rather that, that that this was where we see it. Well, this is where the story ends, where we get to see we we are left with something that is uh, that's something that could be argued about instantly, uh, in, in, infinitely. That we can pick apart that has huge gaps in it left for you to put in your own thoughts and feelings and interpretations, and that essentially exists for the ages because no one's ever going to solve Twin Peaks. And you get that sense that even Lynch himself wouldn't be able to solve it, that he wouldn't be able to explain everything that he did. There was just a lot of stuff that came to him in moments of inspiration and that he dredged up from his subconscious. And I would much rather that that's what we're left with than he feels the obligation to come back in like in however many years' time and do something else. I couldn't agree with you more, Ed. That'll do, Dave. That'll do. <laughs> uh, okay, we end every episode of this show with SRS Recommends, in which we recommend some piece of culture that we are we've enjoyed or that we're just really excited about emily what have you got to recommend for our listeners well ed i'm so so excited about cuphead which mm. i believe is coming out on xbox soon imminently i yep. only found out about it at the top of my day today and <laughs> i was watching the polygon pat and simone and it just looked brilliant. And I am someone who, in terms of my gaming uh, tastes, veer more towards interactive stories, funnily enough. Uh, yeah. Things like Firewatch and um, the Stanley Experiment, because funnily enough, I like things that mess around with the idea of narrative. Um, and watching Cuphead, it's odd because... I'm generally not someone who likes a lot of kind of shooting, running around, up and down, lots of stuff happening on the screen. 
but watching the graphics and this weird kind of like old old school kind of um cartoon like mickey mouse looney tunes kind of style um i just loved it and it looked really funny and it looks fiendishly hard and mm-hmm. i'm very excited to give that a whirl so that is my what i'm looking forward to yeah fantastic i am going to recommend i mean twin peaks particularly episode eight got me thinking about um kind of modern creation myths and the points at which we can see kind of like um points at which history kind of veers off in a in a certain direction and so i'm going to recommend ken burns and lynn novick's the vietnam war which is the latest of the many series of extremely long and detailed and compelling documentaries that ken burns has made over the years this time tackling probably the defining conflict of the latter half of the 20th century as far as america is concerned in that their involvement in the war and the way in which it distracted from and then exacerbated cultural and social issues at home can be seen as the beginning of a derangement in american culture that would reverberate until now so much so that people still complain about certain politicians in positions of great power getting deferments for bad feet and whatnot you know it's very much a um it's very much kind of like a a conflict that was so vast and so consumed the culture of the u.s for for so many years that um it really feels as if no one has ever really grappled with it and i wouldn't say this is a definitive take on it but it certainly feels like the closest anyone has come to tackling every single facet of the war so far and uh, it's it's just really really compelling and uh, i've been really really enjoying it that sounds fascinating and it totally just blew cuphead out of the water <laughs> <laughs> well i mean cuphead looks amazing oh, i yeah. also watched that that stream on polygon and yeah if you just want to watch two people slowly lose their minds trying to defeat a flower then <laughs> you can't go wrong we're looking at that that stream and yeah like Cuphead to me isn't the sort of game I usually gravitate to. I was never someone into like those contra, really exceedingly difficult shooters. But the visual style of it looks so amazing, and the everything about it is just smacks of like these really interesting choices that the creators have made. That um, I feel like I have to just witness it for myself. Emily, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me probably best on Twitter. And my handle is at Benita Emily. But you can also follow my endeavours in podcasting at Feasibly Prod and our podcast at Past Tense Pod. Which is a great show. I've really been enjoying listening to it, particularly as someone who studied the English Civil War many, many years ago, but have forgotten huge swathes of it. And also my understanding of it was very, very limited to like a handful of battles so to get that fuller view of it has been wonderful edu star thank you so much for listening and yeah there's a there's an awful 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 lot of battles <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much emily this has been fantastic and yeah i also could talk about twin peaks for, for hours but we've talked for long enough and i really need to rush off and go and watch a film <laughs> i need to go and watch battle of the sexes so oh, once again, thank, well i want to talk thank to you about you. that when you're done but ed thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure
I can't wait to actually listen to that episode once I've finally got around to watching all of Twin Peaks 3. Yeah, it will, fi- it will finally make sense to you, all mm. of the stuff about waters, wells, horses. Uh, it's all it's all great. <laughs> yeah, and I, re- I, I honestly can't wait to hear what you think about it because it's been such a widely divi- divisive season of television uh, that, uh, yeah, I think you and I could probably record a whole other episode in which we just kind of take it apart. But, yeah uh if uh if you've enjoyed the show then please subscribe to us on itunes and stitcher and player fm leave us a review recommend us to a friend you know if you've got a friend who really liked twin peaks season three or hated it then uh, recommend it i'm sure they'll enjoy listening to an hour and 50 minute discussion mm. about why two people they've never met really really enjoyed it you can uh, also find us on twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast and we are on facebook we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me